The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Monday, September 28th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. An undergrad has proven that paradox-free time travel is indeed possible. If you thought email newsletters were ubiquitous now, let me introduce you to the world of 1930s mimeograph newsletters. The emerging field of biomedical tattoos and the satanic tea company here to bust stereotypes. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. An undergraduate at the University of Queensland has apparently proven that time travel without paradoxes is possible. This is from a new paper published last week in the journal Classical and Quantum Gravity by the student Jermaine Tabar and his professor Fabio Costa, quoting Popular Mechanics. The math itself is complex, but it boils down to something fairly simple. Time travel discussion focuses on closed time-like curves, or CTCs, something Albert Einstein first posited. And Tobar and Costa say that as long as just two pieces of an entire scenario within a CTC are still in causal order when you leave, the rest is subject to local free will. Our results show that CTCs are not only compatible with determinism and with the local free choice of operations, but also with a rich and diverse range of scenarios and dynamical processes, their paper concludes, end quote. In other words, stepping on a butterfly during a dinosaur hunting expedition would not entirely change the present world you return to. And the way Marty McFly prevented his parents from meeting or accidentally left behind a sports almanac for Biff to find would not drastically change his present reality either. Instead, the mathematical research here shows that time travel would be more akin to Avengers Endgame, something that matches the findings from Los Alamos Laboratory earlier this summer, Side note, Los Alamos is also one of the few labs messing around with plutonium, so all I'm saying is if you see a DeLorean cruising around New Mexico, maybe watch out. But essentially, the findings say that you can go back to the past and mess with things a little bit, but it will basically smooth over and eventually lead to the same result, preventing things like the grandfather paradox, in which you go back in time, kill your own grandfather, and then prevent yourself, the time traveler, from ever existing. Tobar and Costa used a relevant example from our present time to put their complex math into plain language. Quoting a press statement by the researchers, Say you travel in time in an attempt to stop COVID-19's patient zero from being exposed to the virus. However, if you stopped that individual from becoming infected, that would eliminate the motivation for you to go back and stop the pandemic in the first place. This is a paradox, an inconsistency that often leads people to think that time travel cannot occur in our universe. Logically, it's hard to accept because that would affect our freedom to make any arbitrary action. It would mean you can time travel, but you cannot do anything that would cause a paradox to occur. 
In the coronavirus patient zero example, you might try and stop patient zero from becoming infected, but in doing so, you would catch the virus and would become patient zero, or someone else would. No matter what you did, the salient events would just recalibrate around you. Try as you might to create a paradox, the events will always adjust themselves to avoid any inconsistency. End quote. So, our timelines are a bit more self-correcting than we thought, and trying to adjust the timeline we're currently living in to go back to one where perhaps a different person won an election and the Berenstain Bears are still the Berenstain Bears probably isn't gonna happen. As NPR quoted from Stephen King's time travel novel, 112263, about trying to prevent the Kennedy assassination, quote, The past is obdurate. It doesn't want to be changed. Remember when everyone you knew was starting a podcast? Well, I guess that's actually still happening a bit, but in some ways it's been eclipsed by everyone starting a newsletter. Almost every writer, journalist, general internet creator, or personality I know of has a tiny letter or substack these days. Jason Kotke and I talked about this phenomena a little bit on the weekend bonus episode of this show on September 19th, which you should absolutely go listen to if you haven't yet. We discussed how email newsletters are perhaps the closest current analog of personal expression to what blogs once were. In fact, Ann Friedman, author, co-host of the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, and writer of the Ann Friedman Weekly Newsletter, told Vanity Fair last year that around 2013, when personal newsletters really started taking off again, that starting one was, quote, fully recognized as what you do because you don't blog anymore, end quote. And it certainly solves the issue of how do I read your blog that Jason mentioned he's heard from newer potential readers who skipped over the blogging and RSS feed days. Just send your blog straight to people's inboxes. Now, so many people have their own email newsletters that Vanity Fair and others have declared were at peak newsletter. Even though Rusty Foster, the creator of one of my personal favorite now defunct newsletters today in tabs, has said, quote, Peak newsletter has been happening continuously since, like, 1986, end quote. And Wired says peak newsletter goes even further back. And their lead for the story on that is eerily accurate to our times. Quote, By the time Claude Cockburn resigned from his post as foreign correspondent for the Times of London, he'd grown sick of the newspaper's conservative streak. But even as a freelancer, he continued to struggle with what he saw as the media's complacency toward the rise of ultra-nationalist movements around the world. So he tried a new approach. He'd start a newsletter and make himself a brand. Cockburn's first issue went out to subscribers in March 1933, end quote. Wired points to two key reasons that hordes of journalists followed in Cockburn's footsteps in the decades to come and went to independent sources of publication, both of which are relevant to today's newsletter trend as well. Accessibility of new technology and a lack of confidence in the news media. As for technology, the mimeograph, which had been around since the late 1800s, was finally being mass-produced for consumers and priced at about the modern equivalent of $500 to $1,000. And it wasn't just popular for independent journalists. It led to a boom in chapbooks, especially among Allen Ginsberg and his coterie, fanzines, and underground LGBTQ plus publications. 
Like the internet and social media for us now, the mainstream accessibility of this technology enabled niche and minority populations to communicate with one another and share their stories when no major media streams would dare to do so. And it was that homogeneity of the major news publications that also led many journalists to part ways with their employers and start up shop as independent journalists. Quoting Wired, At the time, public trust in mainstream media was wavering. Newspapers were making good money, but they were also increasingly turning into a monopoly. From 1923 to 1943, the number of U.S. towns with at least two daily newspapers dropped from 502 to 137, according to media historian Victor Picard's book America's Battle for Media Democracy. At the time, the popular perception was that newspapers were a bastion of conservative, not liberal politics, driven by the interests of big business. By the end of the 1930s, many papers were fiercely opposed to the New Deal and to labor organizing, stances that would alienate large numbers of readers. As Picard shows, the growing market consolidation paired with these ideological concerns led thousands of Americans in the 1940s to pack panels with titles like, Is the American Press Really Free? End quote. And the newsletters of the 30s through the 50s really took off. Claude Cockburn's newsletter was popular enough to be read by the likes of Charlie Chaplin and King Edward VII, and was the original outlet to break the news of the threat of Francisco Franco just before the coup that would lead to his rise to power. Journalist George Seldes published what was probably the most popular newsletter of the day, reaching over 176,000 people at its peak, including Eleanor Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and a large number of sitting senators. Newsletters were sold in like-minded bookstores and newsstands, as well as via subscription, with union subscriptions being one of the particularly powerful modes of proliferation and profit for left-leaning publications, and conservative writers eventually got in on the game too. But those modes of distribution eventually dried up, and as they are wont to do, traditional publishers and corporations got in on the game, making it much harder for independent journalists to make a living on newsletters anymore. By the 60s and 70s, newsletters had to rely almost exclusively on direct mailing, and one-third of all independent newsletters failed each year. The good news, in a way, at the time, was that the newspaper industry was actually booming. While many journalists chose to go independent for ideological or passion reasons, they could easily find a well-paying job with the newspaper again if need be. Whereas today, journalists are having a harder time than ever finding full-time work. Many have turned to newsletters as side hustles to try to pay the bills. Meanwhile, corporations are already flooding the email newsletter market and picking off talented newsletter writers for their own, perhaps signaling the impending end of this iteration of the newsletter boom. Just as the past is apparently unchangeable in any consequential ways, so too does it repeat itself with broad strokes and perpetuity. Tattoos have become increasingly common over the last few decades, and accordingly, the stigma surrounding them has worn off quite a bit as well. It's still there, of course, especially in older generations and certain cultures, but what if you could defend your tattoo by saying it's for medical purposes? Tattoos that can indicate biochemical changes in your body as warning signs for larger conditions have been in development by various teams of scientists over the last several years. Carson Bruns, a chemist, artist, and assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, has been working on tattoos that detect UV light, and also served as the first human test subject for them. 
But before I dive more into Brunza's specific work, here's a quick summary of recent developments, quoting the conversation. In 2017, researchers tattooed pig skin, which had been removed from the pig, with molecular biosensors that use color to indicate sodium, glucose, or pH levels in the skin's fluids. In 2019, a team of researchers expanded on that study to include protein sensing and developed smartphone readouts for the tattoos. This year, they also showed that electrolyte levels could be detected with fluorescent tattoo sensors. In 2018, a team of biologists developed a tattoo made of engineered skin cells that darken when they sense an imbalance of calcium caused by certain cancers. They demonstrated the cancer-detecting tattoo in living mice." End quote. While all of those projects detect biomedical changes within a person, Bruns and his team are working on the detection of external changes, mostly UV exposure as a warning sign for skin cancer. Quoting Bruns in the conversation, We developed an invisible tattoo ink that turns blue only in UV light, alerting you when your skin needs protection. The tattoo ink contains a UV-activated dye inside of a plastic nanocapsule less than a micron in diameter, or thousandth of a millimeter, about the same size as an ordinary tattoo pigment. The nanocapsule is needed to make the color-changing tattoo particles large enough. If tattoo pigments are too small, the immune system rapidly clears them from the skin and the tattoo disappears. They're implanted using tattoo machines in the same way as regular tattoos, but they last for only several months before they start to degrade from UV exposure and other natural processes and fade, requiring a booster tattoo. End quote. The team is also developing UV protective tattoos that would essentially act as long-lasting sunscreen by absorbing the UV light that penetrates the skin. And while that may sound like a lot of pain to endure for how much surface area that would have to cover to be effective, Bruns also notes that scientists have been working on needle-free tattooing methods using microscopic ink droplets fired into the skin. And tattoo tech is going in even more directions. There's epidermal electronics, or wearable electronic tattoos that would do things like, quote, sense electrophysiological signals like heart rate and brain activity, or monitor hydration and glucose levels from sweat, end quote. But there's also non-medical uses, like, quote, controlling mobile devices, for example, shuffling a music playlist at the touch of a tattoo, or for luminescent body art that lights up the skin, end quote. And Bruins notes that color-changing tattoos that can be programmed with electromagnetic signals will change the game on tattoos. You could have a tattoo that's visible when you're out with friends, but turn it off for work. All of this is not completely without risk, however. Even ordinary tattoo pigments currently in use are unregulated by the FDA. Hopefully, as new tech is being developed in labs, there will be some level of caution and oversight being exercised, but the long-term effects of micro and nano implants is yet to be studied. If you ever got a craving for a cup of tea, but just felt it wasn't hardcore enough for your personal brand, Pitch Black North is here to help. Dominic Alvarez's delightfully sinister Loose Leaf Tea Company was founded on satanic values and is here to provide a cup of brown joy to people who might not typically be interested in tea due to its fairly stuffy, fancy, maybe cat lady type of stereotyping. Pitch Black North's sustainably sourced loose leaf blends include Satan's Slumber, Throat of Lucifer, Cradle of Filth, in official collaboration with the band, Banshee Brew, and Vanilla Earl Grey. 
For the fall season, they've also released an Antichrist Pumpkin Spice. And as for their satanic values, their site says, quote, Satanic values have been a part of our core beliefs in our personal lives and through this company. We are not here to inform, but challenge you to look from a different perspective. And additionally, they include a quote from Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, which reads, quote, Satan represents indulgence. Satan represents undefiled wisdom, end quote. And a quick reminder that the Church of Satan does not actually worship Satan. It's more of a philosophical community using purposefully provocative imagery to challenge beliefs on, well, beliefs. But getting back to Pitch Black North, the tea company, their Instagram is filled with photos of scantily clad models in corpse paint faces having tea parties in a field. They do have a really strong brand, I'll give that to them. So if you are into goth or metal and want a tea company that matches your aesthetic, Pitch Black North is the company for you. But there are also plenty of other options on the market, especially if you're looking for less music-inspired and more generally spooky for the Halloween season. Brutalities sells loose-leaf tea blends based on horror movies and metal bands. They have options like Chai Put a Spell on You, Back in Blackberry, and A Chalkwork Orange. And if coffee is more your vibe, I would like to recommend the number one most frequently targeted ad for me, Bones Coffee Company. Now, admittedly, I still haven't tried them, but they are a small batch roaster with really great art design, and their roasts include Jacked O'Lantern, Frankenbones, and a Rest in Peace decaf. So if you're looking to get spooky with your caffeine this season, there are a few recommendations for tea or coffee that are as dark as your soul. That's it for today. As always, the Kotki Ride Home was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go hop in my DeLorean and accelerate to 88 miles per hour, because apparently, if I end up in the past, there is nothing I can do to make 2020 even worse. I hope you all had a great weekend. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.